Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The loons mean it's the beginning of the show. (laughs) Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown. Across the table from me is my good pal, Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. Good morning from the studio. Good morning from the Dark Poutine Yumber Yard Studio. (laughs) I guess that's what it is. I should get a sign for the door that says Yumber Yard. Why not? Not outside, because I don't want the neighbors to know (laughs) that this is the Yumber Yard. (laughs) Maybe it would be better if some of them knew so they could keep it down already. We're recording. Keep the noise down, Sonny. We're recording. What's wrong with you people? The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. Grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. True crime that sizzles. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> I kind of like that. Toronto theatre magnate and enigmatic millionaire Ambrose J. Small disappeared without a trace on December 2nd, 1919, only a day after having made a lucrative deal to sell his ownership interests in his chain of theatres, including the Grand Opera House in Toronto. People interested in the case suspected one of two theories were the most likely for the tycoon's abrupt disappearance. Either Small had run off with somebody and gone into hiding under his own steam, or a group had abducted and very likely killed him. This case has become one of Canada's oldest mysteries, as more than a hundred years later there is still no answer regarding Small's ultimate fate. You are listening to Dark Poutine episode 213, The Mystery of the Missing Millionaire, Ambrose Small. Ambrose J. Small was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Everything he had, he earned through hard work, sheer force of will, and an obsessive, sometimes problematic personality. It has been said that Small was not exactly easygoing. In her book, The Missing Millionaire, author Katie Dobbs paraphrased a theater critic of the era who stated that if Small had been nicer, perhaps more effort would have been put into finding out what actually happened to him. Dobbs went on to say that over the last century, the personality of Ambrose Small has been rendered down into that of a, quote, vengeful, petty businessman. Although he was definitely that, 
he was in fact much more complex. Dobbs' book dives deeper into his character and exposes a much more three-dimensional person. I highly recommend Katie Dobbs' book, published by Penguin Canada, to anyone who's interested in learning more about this very fascinating Canadian story. In the winter of 1866, after having been married only a year, Ellen and Daniel Small, a hotelier, welcomed their first child, a boy they named Ambrose Joseph, whom they soon had baptized in the Catholic Church. At first, the family had settled in Bradford in what was then called West Canada, and later became part of the province of Ontario. Running a hotel in those days was not as lucrative or prestigious as it might be today, but Daniel had dreams of the big city. In 1874, Daniel had worked hard enough to acquire enough cash to move the family to Queen Street in Toronto. Daniel leased the National Hotel and Tavern, which sat at Queen and Bathurst, just down the road from their home. The family was growing after Ambrose's younger sister Florence came along when he was 11. Ellen and Daniel did their best to instill their children with a strong work ethic. They were upwardly mobile as well. In 1880, Daniel was able to move the family downtown, taking over the busy hotel and bar that sat next to the busy Grand Opera House. According to Biography.ca, the property called, quote, the Grand Opera House, in which brewer Ignatius Corman had an interest, was situated on Adelaide Street West. It was adjacent to Alexander Henderson Manning's Grand Opera House on the New York-based circuit of Augustus P2, end quote. Ambrose went to work with his father when he was just 13 years old, first selling newspapers, serving customers in the saloon, ushering at the theater, and taking bets on the racehorses. Ambrose loved the entertainment business, but had his eyes set on one day becoming a lawyer. According to Katie Dobbs' book, it was British actor Sir Henry Irving, supposed inspiration for the character Count Dracula, who, upon meeting the youngster, convinced Ambrose to stick with the business of show. Dobbs attributes a quote apparently made by Irving to Ambrose Small taken from an article published in the January 20, 1920 edition of the Toronto Telegram newspaper. Irving reportedly said to Small, quote, The show business needs smart boys like you. Stay in this business. End quote. That must have stuck in the young man's head because Ambrose did just that and at 18 he began working as an assistant treasurer at the Grand. The idea of owning the place was growing like a weed inside him. This is probably what led to his arguments with then-manager of the Grand, Oliver Barton Shepard. Shepard fired Ambrose, who then took his talents to another establishment in the city called Toronto Opera House, a vaudeville and melodrama theatre. It was there that Small got the experience that would lead to his eventually becoming one of the richest theater moguls in Canada at the time. Ambrose was 17 years old when his sister Gertrude was born. Ellen, Small's mother, who'd become more infirm after each one of her pregnancies, had developed Bright's disease, a then-fatal kidney disorder. In 1887, when Ambrose was just 21, she passed away. Ambrose, though devastated by his mother's death, was rising through the ranks at the Toronto Opera House, eventually earning the position of manager there. He was saving his cash as well and started investing in the mortgages of other theatres around the city. 
After that, Ambrose Small's power grew as he aligned himself with other money men, including penning a deal with Clark J. Whitney, a well-known theater tycoon in nearby Detroit. After Whitney's death, Small moved in on Whitney's holdings in Ontario. Over the next number of years, the name Ambrose Small would become synonymous with the theater business in Toronto, and his massive walrus-style mustache made him quickly recognizable around the city. He was a smaller man, standing only 5 foot 6 inches tall, but made up for his physical shortcomings with his knack for business. He was said to be ruthless, greedy, and power-hungry. Eventually, gaining control of a network of more than 30 theatres, both in cities in Ontario and in other Canadian provinces. From Biography.ca, quote, In the process, Small, who in 1906 was elected president of the Canadian Theatrical Managers Association, wrested booking control from the New York syndicates, developed a circuit of 34 theatres, half of them outside Ontario, through ownership, lease, or control of booking, and amassed a fortune. In 1912, his circuit was justly described by Michael Bennett Levitt as, quote, one of the most carefully booked in America, end quote. So he was like Ticketmaster before Ticketmaster. Or more like Cineplex before Cineplex. Okay. Yeah, because Ticketmaster doesn't own the venues. Right. He owned the venues. Yeah. So it was like, uh, yeah, so Cineplex. Do you ever go to the cinema? I don't go to the movies. I don't. We have like a TV that works and it's just sort of like. Well, and since the pandemic, you can rent a lot of new releases. Yeah. For the amount that you would pay to go see a movie anyway. Yeah. I bet bet you theaters will start disappearing. Eventually. Yeah. 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 Like video stores did and record stores. Remember those? Vinyl. (laughs) We still, we still have them, but they're for the uh, vinyl does sound better. Anyway, we digress. As Ambrose Small was conquering the theater business, he also used his power to gain the favor of chorus girls employed in his various establishments, becoming an inveterate womanizer. According to a Toronto Star article, Small, quote, rewarded the chorus girls with chocolate and seduced them in a secret room at the Grand Opera House, decked out with a lavish bed, bar, and salacious paintings of nude women. Despite his lecherous ways, he married the daughter of his stepmother, Teresa Corman, and in doing so, positioned himself to inherit a significant sum from his new in-laws. Small continued to have affairs after his nuptials, many to the knowledge of his wife, end quote. Even though Ambrose and Teresa seemed an unlikely match, she was a pious, generous, and creative person, while Ambrose was a hedonist and a chauvinist. In business, though, the couple were unstoppable. As they never had children, people have surmised that the union was more a business arrangement than a marriage. From the CanadianEncyclopedia.ca, quote, Teresa took shopping holidays in Europe and Small vacationed at racetracks in the United States. The Smalls lived in an opulent mansion in Toronto's affluent Rosedale district, but they slept in separate bedrooms, end quote. You know, a lot of people have marriages of convenience or marriages of state or strategic marriages. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, really. No. I, li- I like a good power couple. Sure. And for one reason or another, sometimes love marriages turn into marriages of convenience as well. Over time. Over time, yeah. 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 You know, you get sick of each other. <laughs> <laughs> and just like, okay, this is our business. This is our business now. It's it's good for tax purposes. Have you ever been to Rosedale? I have never been to Rosedale. It in... is swing. 
swank. It yeah. has like these beautiful old Victorian brick mansions. Yeah. That you'd really never see over here in BC. We don't see a lot of brick buildings at all here in no. British well, Columbia. I think because A, there's so much wood yeah. out here and B, earthquakes. Right. right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And, um, you know, the East Coast is much older Canada, if you know right. what I mean. Yeah. Teresa's money helped Ambrose gain one of his proudest moments, perhaps, buying the Grand Opera House. When he took ownership, it was said that even before the ink was dry on the deal for the Grand, Small had taken great glee in unceremoniously tossing his old nemesis, Oliver Barton Shepherd, out of the establishment. Ambrose Small's abrasive personality, questionable business practices, and penchant for cheating when it benefited him, made him many enemies, both in business and personally. From the Canadian Encyclopedia.ca, quote, Small gained a reputation for being ruthless and unscrupulous. He allegedly enjoyed finding means of cheating associates. He planted business contracts with clauses he called jokers that worked to his financial advantage. Small was also suspected of using his influence to, quote, fix horse races. His quarrelsome nature and his underhanded methods made him widely hated. Toronto journalist Hector Charlesworth, who knew Small personally, commented in his book More Candid Chronicles from 1928, quote, If I heard once, I heard a score of times, the ominous words, somebody will get Amby someday, end quote. Hmm, people like this either get their comeuppance. Or they don't. Or they end up holding on to a great deal of power all their lives and get everything they want. Exactly. Right? I, I think we all we all think we we all want to live in a society where we can like shake our fists and go, ha, ha, ha. you know, you got your comeuppance, but yeah. it doesn't happen often. No, uh, I used to have this sort of idea that only good people succeeded, <laughs> which is like totally not the case. If you watch It's a Wonderful Life, mm. <laughs> it's not it's not actually good people who succeed. And look at what's going on in the world right now with some of the richest people on the planet. Well, you have the kleptocrats in Russia who essentially have stolen everything yeah. to become powerful individuals. And then you have people like Jeff Bezos at Amazon. Sure, he did some innovative things to help people. But to now just sort of owns everything. Now he just sort of owns everything. He wants Rotterdam to disassemble a bridge so his giant yacht can get through. Mm -hmm. And it's like a... A historic bridge. Piss off. Right? He doesn't sound like a good guy. No, he sounds like a dick. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess if you've got the money, you can be a dick. Yeah, well, I think I wouldn't be a dick if I had money. That's I don't know if I would. I don't know. I Like, I, I don't want to say I would not, because if it ever happens and I am, then people will say, hey, Mike said on episode <laughs> 213 he wouldn't be a dick. <laughs> But uh, I don't know if I could handle it. I think I'd have like a massive, like I'd have like a hundred dogs. I'd like save tons of dogs. I thought you were going to say you'd have a hundred dollars. No, I'd, <laughs> I'd have like all these dogs that I'd look after. That's, that's a noble thing. I'd be the crazy dog man. Sure. <laughs> Ambrose Mall was riding high for almost two decades, but eventually people began spending their entertainment dollars on an exciting new medium, moving pictures. As audiences began to gravitate away from live entertainment in favor of film, Ambrose started to lose money and decided to sell his chain as, according to Biography.ca, Small's business was, quote, 
faced with increasing production costs and decline in the theatrical touring business, end quote. What had been a cash cow was now a losing venture, and Ambrose Small hated losing. The buyers he'd romanced and finally convinced to buy the business in November 1919 were a group called TransCanada Theatres Limited. On December 1st, 1919, Small was excited to get the deal done to sell his flagging business. He was set to make out like a bandit, scoring $1.7 million for his theater chain. Using an inflation calculator, I discovered that $1.7 million in 1919 had the buying power of just shy of $28 million in today's currency. Quite a pretty piece of change. From McLean's Magazine, quote, The deal had been closed in the law offices of Osler and Harcourt in the presence of Small's friend and attorney E.W.M. Flock, Mrs. Small, and W.J. Shaughnessy representing TransCanada Theatres. Shaughnessy had brought from Montreal a certified check for the down payment of $1 million. TransCanada folded before any of the $700,000 balance could be paid. End quote. On December 2nd, 1919, Ambrose went to his office at the Grand. From there, Small went out and purchased jewelry, a fur coat, and a Cadillac for Teresa before going to his favorite barber for a shave in the early afternoon. According to Katie Dobbs, Ambrose had bragged to the barber that he had a check for a million dollars in his pocket and was on his way to a celebratory lunch with his wife and their lawyer. After lunch, Small dropped off his wife at a Catholic orphanage on Bond Street where she had been doing charity work, saying that he would be home for dinner at six. Ambrose then left for the Dominion Bank to deposit the massive check. At around 5 p.m., lawyer Edward Flock dropped in to see Ambrose in his office at the Grand to pick up his commission for doing the legal heavy lifting for Ambrose in the TransCanada deal. Flock later said that Ambrose seemed as happy as a clam. He was a very rich man, after all. Ambrose invited Flock for dinner at his home, but as the attorney had to catch a train, he declined. Flock left the Grand at around 5.30 p.m., and after that, there was never another confirmed sighting of Ambrose Small dead or alive. When Ambrose did not come home for dinner, Teresa had gone out around the city looking for him at his usual haunts, but there was no sign of Ambrose. She did not report Ambrose as a missing person. He disappeared for a few days before. He might simply be off with another woman, perhaps his favorite, a married lady named Clara, celebrating his recent windfall. Teresa told friends and business associates who asked that she believed Ambrose would come home soon, and they had no reason to disbelieve her. He had done it before. Over the next week, even with her husband missing, according to newspaper social columns, Teresa kept her pre-scheduled engagements. According to Katie Dobbs' book, on December 8, six days after Ambrose vanished, Edward Flock arrived in Toronto to take care of some more business with Ambrose. When he didn't find Small at his office at the Grand, and other employees told Flock they hadn't seen Ambrose at all in the last week, Flock contacted Teresa. Teresa asked Flock, Isn't he with you? Flock found it odd that this was the first time he was hearing about Ambrose Small's disappearance. Why hadn't Teresa reached out earlier? It wasn't until a full two weeks after Ambrose Small disappeared, December 16, 1919, that James Cowan, the Grand's manager, contacted police to report Ambrose a missing person. As we know, the hours after a disappearance are crucial in finding clues. 
Small hadn't packed any suitcases and wasn't suspected to be carrying much cash, so it was unusual that he had just disappeared. Police found no evidence of him paying for transportation or accommodation by check either. So what happened to Ambrose? We'll take a break right here. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts so far about uh, Mr. Ambrose Small? And... You know, I think on one hand, it's odd that nobody, especially Teresa, didn't report him as missing. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand... It's he, not odd. He seems to be a guy who sort of did his own thing, traveled a lot, sure. probably didn't report into anyone. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm not sure if it's dodgy that nobody reported him missing. Right. Like, I, I... like maybe there's this, like... Yeah, I've known people that have just often, they just go away and do their own thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I could see sort of an, oh, damn, it's been two weeks. Right. He, he, what do you mean he hasn't spoken to you? You know, I can see that happening with this guy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I think that over the years, people have painted Teresa in that way. Yeah. Um, but I think we're going to learn some more. Okay. D.C. Draper, Toronto's chief constable at the time, sent out a missing poster with Small's details and a photo of the missing man. Ambrose J. Small. Description. Age, 53, 5 foot 6 or 7 inches tall, 135 to 140 pounds. Blue eyes, reddish complexion. Brown hair and mustache, streaked with gray. Hair receding on temples. Is very quick in his movements. Mr. Small, who was well-known in theatrical circles in the United States and Canada, was owner of the Grand Opera House Toronto, and was last seen in his office at his theatre on the afternoon of December 2, 1919. When last seen, he was wearing a dark tweed suit and a dark overcoat with velvet collar and soft felt hat. The above photo, although taken some time previous to his disappearance, is a good likeness, except that for a considerable time he has been wearing his mustache clipped short. A reward was offered by Teresa for the return of Ambrose Small, $500 at first, but eventually growing to $50,000 were Small found alive and the reward dropped to $15,000 if he were found dead. The reward proved effective at bringing people out of the woodwork, claiming to have seen Ambrose Small or knowing where he was, but unable to produce any actual evidence. Some people were arrested and charged for trying to con Mrs. Small out of the reward money after providing false clues. So, remember how we were talking about, like, robber barons earlier mm -hmm. in the episode? Yeah. Well, as soon as there's money involved, it often brings out the worst in people. Yeah. So we talked about, you know, the rich, ruthless guy character earlier in the show. But sure. at the same time, not-so-rich people... We'll do bad things as soon as money's available as well. Uh, you hear it um, in families all the time. Yeah. All the time. Someone will win the lottery, say. And then it just... And then, whammo, you have cousins that you've never met before saying, I have my grandmother 
who needs new legs yeah, and like, we need to get her mechanical legs. It's like there. you haven't spoken to me in 30 years and now you're speaking to me, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's bizarre. But not surprising. I mean, you know. Like make your own damn money. Yeah, make your own damn money. <laughs> From a McLean's Magazine article, quote, Early in the investigations, two newsboys, Nat and Louis Savian, testified that they had seen Small walking east on Adelaide Street sometime after 5.30. Fred Lamb, owner of a hotel next to the Grand, said Small had dropped into his hotel Tuesday night and stayed until 7. There was no doubt about the sincerity of his testimony, but considerable doubt that the witnesses could be sure that they had seen Small on a Tuesday, the day of his disappearance, and not the day before. Alfred Elson, a caretaker in a building on Bloor Street, stated that on the night of December 2nd, he had seen four men bury something heavy in a dump in Rosedale Ravine. George J. Susie, an engineer with the McLean Publishing Company, claimed that on December 2nd he saw Small held in a car speeding north on Young Street. End quote. Police searched the Rosedale Ravine, dredged the harbor in Toronto, and looked all over the Grand and Small's other properties, even digging up the basement of Small's mansion at one point, but found nothing. There were several claims of Small being held for ransom by gangsters in New York, but all investigations into those lines of inquiry proved no real evidence. In the months after his disappearance, sightings of Ambrose came from Canada, the United States, Europe, and again, according to McLean's, quote, Blackstone the magician later swore an affidavit that he had seen Small playing roulette in Juarez, Mexico on April 8, 1920, end quote. There was a suspect in Small's disappearance, his personal secretary, John Doty, a.k.a. Charles B. Cooper. He had coincidentally disappeared around the same time as Ambrose, having stolen $100,000 in negotiable victory bonds from the company's safe deposit box sometime very close to Small's disappearance. From the encyclopedia.ca Doty had worked for Small for several years and had often complained about his tiny salary. Doty disappeared soon after Small did, along with about $100,000 in bonds from Small's safety deposit box in the Dominion Bank. Police learned from informants that Doty had spoken of plots to kidnap and murder Small. Doty was eventually arrested in Oregon, where he'd fled. He confessed to stealing the bonds and was sentenced to a term in prison, but because police had no proof that Small was dead, they couldn't charge Doty with murder. There were a lot of weird reports connected to Ambrose Small's disappearance as well. In 1922, a newspaper in Kingston, Ontario, the Daily British Whig, said that famed psychic medium, Louis Benjamin, was claiming he knew Ambrose Small was alive and well. The headline screamed, Medium declares he saw Small's astral body. The subtitle was, Louis Benjamin says that theatrical magnet appeared before him. Oh dear. The article reads, Toronto, March 31st, 1922. Ambrose J. Small is alive. At least he was alive two weeks ago. That fact has been established by Louis Benjamin, the medium who saw and spoke to him while Small stood at the foot of his bed. It was Small's astral body that Benjamin saw, which he says proves that Small is still alive. The same vision came to him three months ago in the early morning. Small's head and shoulders were only visible at the time. I asked him where he was, said Benjamin, and Small replied that he was on the Isle of Pines. I believe there is some such place, 
Small said he was on an estate belonging to some person called Armand de Prey. The vision then faded away. It was Louis Benjamin who, with Dr. A.D. Watson, published their first book on the 20th plane three years ago. Small's face was solemn and staring, and he looked careworn and haggard. His eyes were filled with pain, declares Benjamin. Benjamin further declared that he... Benjamin further declared that he asked Mr. Small where he was, and Mr. Small, or his astral body, replied, I'm on a boat now that runs into Honey Harbor at Nantucket, Long Island Sound. In the name of God, have inquiries made regarding these places, especially Boston. This was when he appeared the second time. Honey Harbor is not shown on any map, but the other places are. The Isle of Pines is a small island about 30 miles off the coast of Cuba. It was a notorious resort for pirates some years ago. End quote. And what's the expression? Butt kiss? Bum kiss? Bum ki- <laughs> but, bup kiss. Bup kiss. Bup kiss. Bup kiss actually means nothing. Oh no. Okay. So no. you, I think you're thinking of another word that begins with B, which is bullshit. Yes, that's the word. <laughs> this shit makes me laugh. Yeah, I mean... But in newspapers back then, always printed this stuff. Morgan and I talk about things like this on Supernatural Circumstances, and people are looking into remote viewing, right? psychic... What's remote viewing? Uh, remote viewing mm. is someone sits in a room right. and tries to determine what other people might be looking are seeing or looking at in another place okay and there has have been examples of people being bang on okay and i think it has to do with quantum physics um if you look at the quantum world and how like quantum entanglement works and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff it's a big discussion but people like this guy louis benjamin take away from the actual discussion. They give people, like yourself, who is a naysayer, <laughs> a bias against the real science behind this stuff. And it prevents people from being open-minded enough to look into things that might be going on. I think Louis Benjamin is an absolute, was an absolute bullshit artist in a this pro- regard. Pro- professional scammer type. Right, thing. Yeah. right. And there's more people like that in this episode. But we need to make sure that we don't let a one bad apple spoil the whole bunch, Mm -hmm. you know, because maybe there are some things that we can learn in this regard. So yeah, Louis Benjamin, go shit in your hat. (laughs) But people doing real psi research, don't go shit in your hat. Keep doing that. There were other weird theories about Small's disappearance. Some thought perhaps he was somewhere not knowing who he was, suffering from amnesia after some kind of injury or illness. Some people even surmised that flying saucers had absconded with the missing theater mogul. Perhaps they wanted to open a chain of theaters on some faraway planet and needed an expert. Even author Charles Fort, an American writer who specialized in anomalous phenomena, made interesting observations regarding Ambrose Small's disappearance in his book, Wild Talents. Fort, whose whose name became the inspiration for the term Fortean regarding odd phenomena, seemed to think that perhaps Doty had been involved in what became of Small, that the embezzlement and the disappearance had to be related. I think he might be right. But he also made another weird connection. He wrote, quote, Before I looked into the case of Ambrose Small, I was attracted to it by another seeming coincidence. That there could be any meaning in it seemed to be so preposterous that, as influenced by much experience, I gave it serious thought. 
about six years before the disappearance of Ambrose Small, Ambrose Bierce had disappeared. He was a writer. Newspapers all over the world had made much of the mystery of Ambrose Bierce. But what could the disappearance of one Ambrose in Texas have to do with the disappearance of another Ambrose in Canada? Was somebody collecting Ambroses? There was in these questions an appearance of childishness that attracted my respectful attention. End quote. Ambrose's small sisters, Gertrude and Florence, became involved with the investigation, accusing the Toronto police of a papist plot to cover up the murder they felt Teresa had somehow been involved in. Ambrose was declared legally dead in 1923, and in his will he had left almost everything to Teresa, making her a very rich woman and making his sisters very angry. They felt they had been shortchanged and claimed that Ambrose would never have cut them out so coldly. They sued, but lost, sort of. From McLean's Magazine, quote, On April 29, 1924, a settlement was reached under which the Small Sisters were each to receive the interest on $100,000, which Small said she would have given them in the first place, with the principal thrown in. Justice Logie's final words were, quote, The plaintiff, Mrs. Small, leaves the court without any stain whatever upon her character, end quote. I never understood these sorts of settlements, Mike. Mm-hmm. So if somebody leaves their estate to somebody else, yes, that's their business. It is. It was their money. Mm-hmm. They made the decision. But so often, people sue to get it changed. And the, the dead person isn't there to argue it anymore. No. and Like, then, like you were a dick. I'm intentionally not giving you money. You know? Yeah. And then the person who was left behind, who was actually left anything, has to defend the fact that they've received everything. Yeah. And then they will give a settlement to make people be quiet because it begins to eat into the yeah, it's actual just, it's cash. so weird. Like, yeah. If I was a judge, I'd be like, well, was he of sound mind when he did it? Yes. Okay, well, that was his last word, so go away. Yeah, I wish I un- I wish it was that cut and dried and that I understood the legal system more that I could say that was the right <laughs> idea, but um I don't know. I it, obviously it isn't if this kind of stuff happens. Yeah. So. Years after Small's disappearance, Teresa said that she thought Ambrose may be quote in the hands of a designing woman, end quote. Which one? Dixie Carter, Annie Potts or Delta Burke? Oh, you're going all the way back to... Do you remember Designing Women? Yes, I remember Designing Women. I think Dixie Carter and Annie Potts were kind of the nice ones, and Delta was a bit more sketchy, so it would be a Delta Burke (laughs) sort of character. So he was was, uh, dating Delta Burke. Well, actually, if I think about it, Teresa, when she was younger, sort of had a Delta Burke-esque look to her, as did Clara, this other woman who uh, we're just about to talk about. Teresa thought perhaps Ambrose had been abducted by a woman acting on behalf of a group of criminals and had died maybe by accident while being held. She had, in fact, among Small's personal effects while he was alive, found a bundle of saucy and obscene love letters from Clara Smith and a few other girlfriends. Clara was the married young woman that Small had been known to have been involved with. Small had burned the letters in their fireplace, pledging fidelity moving forward, but Teresa knew he had not kept his promise, although he'd been more secretive afterward. In 1928, the Toronto Grand was raised by wrecking crews. Police were in attendance, perhaps expecting to find the bones of Ambrose Small having been secreted in the walls or floor of the theater, but nothing turned up. 
The same year, a noted Viennese criminologist and psychic of sorts, Dr. Maximilian Langsner, said that he had solved the mystery of Ambrose Small's disappearance and would soon produce the skeleton of the missing millionaire. He'd already been made famous in Alberta where he'd used his psychic and hypnotic powers, successfully solving the murder of four people apparently perpetrated by a farmhand named Vernon Boer. The doctor had somehow led police to the gun used by the youth in commission of the crime. Boer was reported to have been so upset by the uncanniness of Dr. Langsner's powers that he surrendered to the authorities and confessed to the murders. Regarding the small case, Langsner had one stipulation, of course, that all expenses in his investigation were to be paid by the City of Toronto. Although skeptical, the police agreed to move forward with Dr. Langsner. According to John Marlowe's Canadian Mysteries of the Unexplained, quote, Sitting in his luxurious Toronto hotel suite, the doctor conducted seances and astral trips. Police were dispatched following each and every divination, but to no avail. The failure, Langsner maintained, had nothing to do with him. Rather, the fault lay with the police themselves who were obscuring his visions. End quote. Ooh, of course. Yeah, right. Makes me laugh. So he's sitting in this, you described this luxurious hotel that the police probably paid for. They absolutely did. Right? Making shit up and then when it doesn't work, oh, it's your fault. (laughs) You're obscuring my vision. Yep. Your doubt is obscuring my vision. You're, yeah. Come on, buddy. Like, again, somebody else who gives actual parapsychology, psychic phenomenon a bad name. Poop on you. Mr. Langsner, Langsner. Langsner. Teresa Small died in 1935, and much to the chagrin of everyone, including Gertrude and Florence, Small's sisters, she left everything to a Catholic charity. In 1936, the sisters produced another letter they claimed had been written in 1929 by Teresa Small, who wasn't around to ensure the veracity of said letter. The sisters claimed it was a confession by Teresa from beyond the grave. As printed in the Kansas City Star, it read in part, quote, I feel downhearted and lonely. I spend most of my time in prayer and preparing my soul for a happy life with God after death. I received absolution from our Holy Father for the great sin I committed December 2, 1919. But I still feel I should not leave this world to face the Eternal Father without telling you what happened to your brother. Poor Ambrose was killed on December 2, 1919, and I know that a part of his body was burned in the Rosedale Ravine dump, and the other parts were burned in the Grand Opera House furnace. You will be surprised, my dear Florence and Gertrude, to learn that I am more than any other person responsible for your brother's death. God forgive me. I will not cause any more pain to a living soul, and that is why I will not reveal the names of those who are involved in this gruesome crime. But I will tell you one thing. It cost me plenty to close their mouths. I am leaving the bulk of your brother's estate to those who are doing Christ's work on earth. They will always pray for the repose of our souls. I have told many untruths about you and Ambrose in court and said unkind things in many unsigned letters which I have sent to you. I hope you will forgive me and your forgiveness will be pleasing to God. I request you, in the name of Christ, not give the contents of this letter to any other person. Leave the matter rest. 
This confession, which relieves my mind of a great burden, is typed by a very dear friend of mine who will deliver it to you after death. Forgive me, my dear Florence and Gertrude, and pray for the repose of my soul when I pass away. God bless you. Your loving sister, signed T. Small. The letter featured in yet another case brought by the sisters questioning the will that left Ambrose Small's nearly $2 million estate to Teresa. After an eight-day trial in the Supreme Court, the case was dismissed by Justice Nickel Jeffrey, who called the claims incredible and said pointedly that the supposed confession letter was an unquestioned forgery, end quote. So did these two sisters get jail time for wasting court effort or, or forgery? It was not ever proven mm -hmm. that they were the authors or had anyone author the letters. They were given the letter by somebody else. Okay. And provenance of the letter, like saying this is a Da Vinci, mm -hmm. when you're not sure if Da Vinci ever painted it. Mm-hmm. So it, sure, it looks like a Da Vinci and it smells like a Da Vinci, but nobody else ever saw Da Vinci do this and, and it was unknown up to this point. Because the provenance of the letter was problematic, Right. nobody really knew where it came from. So, And by the judge's reaction, it was, didn't even smell like a Da Vinci. <laughs> he no. calls it an unquestioned forgery. Yeah, exactly. Reports of Ambrose Small being spotted in Paris walking in the company of two women in the decades after his disappearance went unconfirmed. In 1960, the Toronto police stopped actively investigating the Small case. It is rumored that Small's ghost haunts one of his old and now refurbished establishments, the Grand Theatre on Richmond Street in London, Ontario, Matthew's Neck of the Woods. Author John Robert Colombo claims this is fitting, as it is believed that of all of his theaters, the Grand in London was Small's favorite. From Colombo's Short Stories of Canada, quote, The Grand opened its doors in 1901 and Small's spirit took up residence following his disappearance. Theater folk are a superstitious lot, so it is not surprising that if anything went awry thereafter, during a production or between productions, it was blamed on Amby, the ghost of the Grand. Amby had his own box, stage left. Bella Lugosi performed at the Grand. Beatrice Lilly, the Toronto-born toast of vaudeville, appearing in a review, claimed that a memory lapse saved her life when an arc light fell and shattered center stage where she should have been standing. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, actors and stagehands reported seeing Small's ghost walking the wings or standing in the fly loft. Actors and actresses attributed little mishaps like clasps on costume jewelry becoming undone to the spirit of Ambrose, who loved practical jokes. Yet in 1975, when a producer of television documentaries arranged for seven psychics to meet in a circle on the darkened stage of the Grand, not one of the psychics was able to contact the missing man's spirit. Although one of the psychics claimed that he had received a spirit message that said Ambrose would not be forthcoming. This has proved to be true so far. Still, Small Spirit may well have saved the building from extensive damage. During renovation and restoration work in 1977, a bulldozer clearing debris kept stalling. Good thing it did. It was within inches of knocking down the building's retaining wall. The Grand Theatre is now completely and safely restored to its former Edwardian glory, perhaps thanks to Amby, the ghost of the Grand. 
The Ghost of the Grand. Yes. I love the Grand Theater. So you were familiar with it, and I'm really kind of glad that there was something in this episode that you can talk about as far as a place that you've been. So Yeah, I, I did... Um... Did a bit of work for them when mm-hmm. I first started. Yep. I used to hang out with somebody, a real estate person in London who had a lovely, it was the old firehouse right across the street in her house and office over there. Oh, cool. We used to have drinks there. Then go. there's a uh, restaurant called Garlic's mm-hmm. that I helped launch. Um, go to Garlic's and then go to the theater. It actually, it punches above its weight in terms of like a regional theater. Okay. You know what I mean? Like they, they have some really good stuff. Yep. But I wouldn't call... The Grand isn't the only Edwardian bit, or the only old bit, really, is the Perineum Arch. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) There's a Perineum Arch? Don't put that in, please. No, I'm going to. I have (laughs) to. Perineum Arch. I just said the Perineum Arch. Oh, oh boy. My God. You know know the the arch, though. You know what I I don't have a Perineum Arch. I know what you mean. That was a great. So the arch above the stage. Yeah, yeah. So that that has the old bit, but the rest is quite modern. Most right. really, it's really good. It's it's a really good theater. Yeah. yeah. So now everybody's going to ask for a perennium arch <laughs> T-shirt, Matthew and his perennium arch. Jesus. Oh Lord. <laughs> Slip of the tongue. Oh, <laughs> nothing's forgiven, and you're going to be yeah, mean. And you're gonna then put you it say in. slip of the tongue when you're talking about perennium arches. <laughs> Oh dear! Oh, this, Mike, you're you, dragging us down. Man. You've just dug yourself a big hole. Proscenium. Oh, a hole, big hole. Proscenium what? arch. Okay. <laughs> Perineum. From the Canadian Encyclopedia.ca, speculation over Small's fate has continued, and the case has been subject of magazine articles, books, paintings, and radio play. In 20 Mortal Murders, 1978, Canadian author Orlo Miller made a case for Small's body being incinerated in the furnace of the Grand Theatre in London, Ontario. A recent study by Canadian crime historian Peter Vronsky offers the theory that Teresa was involved in Small's murder and the police officer in charge of the investigation staged a cover-up. The most notable fictional treatment is in Canadian author Michael Ondaatje's 1987 novel, The Skin of a Lion. The small case remains an iconic Canadian mystery. End quote. Regardless of what happened, everyone connected to this case is long dead, and the mystery remains as Ambrose Small is still missing. I've been racking my brains. I have no idea what happened to him. I kind of side with Teresa. I think somebody may have kidnapped him, actually, and he probably died during the kidnapping. And they chickened out to ask for anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because there were were hints of people saying, hold him, all that kind of stuff. There was notes and those kind of things, but none of it was ever proven that that's what was going on. So um, I'm kind of with her on the... Yeah, he probably did that way. Or maybe he died by misadventure. Maybe he went out that night on his way home, got drunk before he... Fell into like Ontario or something. Yeah, exactly. Something simple like that. Just never, never found. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could have been. And there were bones that were found at at some point in an area where they thought he might be, but turned out to be human, but somebody else's. So. Nobody knows what happened to Ambrose Small. And we probably never will now. Well, no, of course not, because it's over as 100 as, years ago. As soon ago. as everyone's gone. Mm-hmm. Right? And in fact, the 
the children of somebody who might have known are also gone. So it's right. going further and further away. But, you know, interest hasn't waned in cases like this. It's like... Um, uh, because it has, you know, it has the theater, right? And, mm -hmm. and sort of a high roller. And, yeah. you know, this is, a, this is one of those stories that people like to hold on to. Yeah, the unsolved, like Jack yeah. the Ripper yeah. kind of thing. You know, that's And there's obviously... a bit of glamour in this one, sure. right? Yeah. yeah. And that's it. For Dark Poutine, episode 213, The Mystery of the Missing Millionaire, Ambrose Small. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. I'm still laughing about Perennium Arch. <laughs> Anyway, let's listen to our first voicemail. Hopefully it's nobody calling about their perineum or perineum or however you pronounce it. Hey, guys. Uh, my name's Tim. I'm calling in from West Central Germany. And I'd really like to say that I'm a longtime listener and I love your show, but I can't. Only because I haven't been listening long. However, my wife, Carrie, can. And she's the reason I'm calling. She listens to almost every crime podcast out there. She started with uh, the two women that do the, uh, I don't know, the My Favorite Murderer, she wrote, or something like that. <laughs> well, you guys are now her favorite. Every week, she cannot wait for your new podcast to come out. So I've been telling her this past few weeks, man, you got to throw some coinage at these guys. They're great. <laughs> they deserve it. <laughs> they work hard. They put out a good show. Throw some coinage. Well, she never got around to it. So, in honor of her milestone birthday I had, I've decided to make her a Patreon mm. and uh, compliment you guys in that way. And uh, I just want to, you know, to keep up your good work with your uh, black pudding show. And uh, as they say in Germany, Scheichen Dining Toot. All right. Take care. I think that's our first caller from West Central Germany. My guess is he's probably near Frankfurt. Could be. Maybe he's there with the Canadian forces. I don't know if they're still yeah, in Germany. I, I spent a summer in Frankfurt. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank ba you. Frankfurt, Manhattan. Manhattan. <laughs> so thank you so much to yourself and to your wife, Carrie. And happy, happy birthday, birthday Carrie. Carrie. Wow, that's amazing uh, that uh, she now likes us. A lot, which is very cool. That is awesome. Yeah. It makes me feel good. I'm like, I'm like, what was, what's that, what's that actress? You like me. You really like me. That was Sally Field. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when she won for The Flying Nun, the okay. Oscars. And yeah, it'll, it'll be, by the time this episode comes out, the Oscar results will be in. How do you know that she won for The Flying Nun? <laughs> I I don't know. I have a mind for this trivia. Random. Yeah, no, I, I, I love entertainment trivia. Okay. Yeah. Are you going to watch the Oscars tonight? I'll watch a bit of it. We'll talk a bit about that in the after show. Which Carrie can now listen to because she's a Patreon. There you go. <laughs> and so next up, we have another voicemail. Um, hey, Mike and Matthew. This is Taylor calling from Calgary, Alberta. Um, I just wanted to call and thank you for Dark Poutine and all the work you put into it. I especially love the chats you have at the end of each episode when doing the voicemails and Patreon shoutouts and how authentic you both are. 
I've been listening for a long time, and I've been thinking about leaving a voicemail, but my nerves always seem to get the best of me. But, Mike, I've noticed a trend where people suggest a more well-known case, and you tend to always think you have nothing to add to it. And I just wanted to call to say you totally have something to add to it. The way you focus on the victim of these crimes and not the perpetrators is so important. You make us see the victim's life and not that they were a victim, but they were a person. Anyways, um, please just remember how deserving you are of this following and this community you've created. Uh, you both radiate light, love, and goodness. And I appreciate it so much. And that's something we can all use a little more of than every day. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank you, Taylor. Yeah, that was really nice. And you know, I have been thinking about more stuff like that. And I will probably cover more well-known cases. And this was one of them. This is one of those cases where so many people have already covered this, but um, I don't know. I kind of like the unsolved aspect of this, and and yeah. Ambrose being a problematic individual was kind of yeah. There are a lot of a lot of real characters in this, right? Yeah. But Taylor's name reminds me of Taylor Hawkins, who died yesterday. Yeah. Really sad. We were just talking about the Foo Fighters in the after show last week as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Foo Fighters. And um, when I heard that news yesterday, I was just like, oh, no. Because I just just watched Studio 666, their movie. And and Taylor actually was a bit of a standout in in that, for me anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... uh, yeah, I mean, he was only 50 years old and a leaves good, behind a wife and kids. Good and, drummer. Yeah, an he excellent a, drummer. The, the dude had like a million dollar smile. He, totally. He looked like a friendly guy. I think he spent a million dollars on his <laughs> smile. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I mean, a, a good guy. And he had uh, a similar struggles that Matthew and I have both had. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's tough to to see somebody go in that way and well what we assume is that way mm-hmm. so anyway let's listen to another voicemail hey y'all this is may um i was just wanting to finally call in uh i've been listening to you guys for most of the pandemic the way i found you was i was doing some light pandemic day drinking you know my box of wine um <laughs> during the early stages and I was trying to get Uber Eats poutine. Um, now, I'm from Florida, and we don't have that here. But I moved up to Washington State, and since they're so close to the, you know, Mother Canada, uh, they have it there. And so I was trying to Uber Eats some poutine, but I apparently was Googling it in my um, podcast, my Google Play podcast area. So y'all came up, and I listened to you because <laughs> I do enjoy true crime. My theory is that if I can think of all the scenarios, maybe they won't happen. <laughs> maybe I can see it coming. Um, but I love what you guys have done. I love your format. I love the stories you tell. I love how respectful you are. It's hard as a lady to not, well, I guess to trust dudes, especially when it comes to violence. Um, from my perspective and my experience, it's difficult. And I just love it when I find men that purport it and, um, Especially you, Mike, uh, that whole debacle that happened before um, with with the person who shall not be named. When you came out and did what you did to keep your um, fans safe, that warmed my heart so much. And I just want to say I appreciate it. I love you guys. Keep it up. 
one day I'll come up to Canada when I finally get my, you know, passport in order. Uh, <laughs> I'm really bad at paperwork. So y'all have a good time. And I'm going to say this, but don't let my uh, Southern grandma hear it. Y'all go take a shoot in your hat. All right. <laughs> bye now. Well, there you go. <laughs> Thank you, May. That That's so great. And we may, may, may come down to Washington State at some point soon-ish. Not may, must. Must. Yes, we must. No, it, it'll be great. I really want to do it. You mentioned it last week, and I'm like, I'm totally up for that. Yeah, so I have to make some phone calls and have some chats with some people who I know are in the Seattle area, and we'll see about making something happen there. Uh, but we want to do something local first, then maybe something on the island for our island fans, because there's a big bunch of them over there. You know, when I was a little kid, I thought the president of the United States lived in Washington State. I did too. <laughs> I did too, but he doesn't. No. So, oh well. <laughs> it's Everything's named Washington. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, May. Thanks, May. Yeah, and uh, I appreciate the, the kind words. and uh, I love that. I love that she was looking in Uber Eats for poutine and found us. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's really fun. Well, Matthew, you thought I owned a poutinery before. I know. Yeah. With that sticker, I'm like, hey, you own a poutinery? You're like, no. no. <laughs> yeah. Ah, well, such is life. But yes, we really appreciate that uh, we're having uh, an impact positively in regard to being male. Um, I haven't always been a nice guy, but, uh, you know. I have. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah, we're we're trying. Anyway, uh, let's listen. We've got one more voicemail here, and it's a short one, so it looks kind of fun, though. All hail the king and queen of dark poutine. Hi, Mike and Matthew. This is Caitlin from Neverville, Manitoba. I couldn't believe that there wasn't a hail to the king and queen reference <laughs> in reference to the banter you two, Mike and Matthew, had in episode 211. I just wanted to say thanks for telling the victim's story so respectfully and kindly. You guys balance the seriousness of the crimes with a little bit of tasteful humor so that it doesn't diminish from the crime. And so, and then your listeners are hopefully chuckling a little bit instead of just crying. Also, the hilarious banter between um, you two is so great that I often find myself laughing out loud. And so often my dog Callie stares at me and is like, what are you listening to now? But that's fine. Anyways, all this to say, you guys rock, and I want you both to have an awesome day. Take care. Bye. Well, thank you so much. That's that means a first, lot. That's the first time my humor has ever been called tasteful. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, I do cut out the, dis the you do. distasteful things. <laughs> Mike, Mike leaves half of me on the edit room floor. <laughs> well, it's like, oh my God. No, that's not true. But uh, interesting... I guess we're the king and queen of dark poutine. Boom. That's, that's, that's kind of fun. Uh, when we go to Vegas, can should we wear like crowns? The king and queen. <laughs> You'll have a little tiara then. Yeah, I want a tiara and, and a sash. I want the big fancy one that QE2 wore at her uh, coronation. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently it's really heavy. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, and she had to like it's do all, neck exercises. It's all gold and big rocks. Yeah. Right? She's got rocks in her head. <laughs> oh, poor old Lizzie. She's not doing so good. Well, she's at a... She's, yeah, in her 90s. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, my. More 
more Canadian stuff talking about the Commonwealth and the Queen. And talking about our head of state. That's right. And you have a picture of our head of state in... In your, my entrance hall. In your entrance hall. The and first, she has her eyes closed. Yes, the first ever official 3D portrait of the Queen. There you it's go. It's lenticular that she sat for. Very nice. Yeah, Chris Levine, the artist, really good guy. Mm-hmm. And it's quite a beautiful picture of it her, is, actually. It's called Equanimity. Mm. And he had a discussion with her about meditation. Oh. And like she sat for him for this, right? And right. She, she told him that um, her meditation was gardening. Good. That's and, really cool. Oh, is that Arts Nursery? Call out to the guys at Arts Nursery. There you go. Um, so I've started <laughs> buying plants before we record each day because I'm the peasant's balcony is going to look fantastic. So it oh. is a meditation. You sit there and you dig in the dirt a little bit and yeah, nothing else is wrong with the world. There you go. Yeah. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 827 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. So you know what that means. It's time for Patreon and Donut Money shoutouts. Okay, first up is our patron... Carrie Dixon, and we know she's in West Central Germany. I'm guessing because it's posted with the United APO, States. APO, I'm guessing forces. it's Wiesbaden. The Wiesbaden? Boom. Do you think? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, call in next week and let us know. Call in. Well, yeah, sure. <laughs> call in again. But uh, thank you so much, Carrie, and your husband who sort of likes us. Well, yes, he does. Yeah. But what do you think? Carrie so it, likes us. He likes us. So what do you think Carrie does over there in Wiesbaden? In Wiesbaden? Yeah. Well, I think... Is she in the military or is he? Maybe they both maybe are. Maybe they both are. Mm-hmm. I think she's a sniper, if anything. Yeah? Yeah. Like, she's she's a, quite a shot from, like, even five kilometers yeah. away. But they ha she's not famous for it yet. Okay. Because she only snipes tin cans. Nice. Yeah, because she's she's actually a pacifist hmm. in the military. So, Carrie, if if you are indeed in Wiesbaden, the next time you're driving in Frankfurt when you're in Kennedy Alley, mm -hmm. think of me. I used to live there. There you go. Yeah, named after Kennedy. Wow. Yeah, Kennedy Alley. I like when we have sort of people who are elsewhere yeah, become cool. patrons. It feels really well, cool. everyone's elsewhere. Not many people are calling in from Surrey. No. Where, <laughs> where are Missouri folks at? <laughs> Uh, next up, from Rocky Mountain House, Alberta, April Wilhite. April Wilhite. Well, thank you, April. And what does April Wilhite do there in Rocky Mountain House, Alberta? I think she's an architect. An architect? She makes Rocky Mountain Houses. Rocky Mountain, because she lives in Rocky Mountain House? Yeah. Of course she makes Rocky Mountain Houses. Sort of, you know, like stone and, and glass and wood. You know, these modern okay. ones, yeah. So I, I was thinking more Alpen. No, I'm thinking looking. like the the flat one that's mostly glass like okay. on the edge of a mountain. So right? it sort of fits into the yeah. yeah, into the landscape. I love a house like that that seems to be have grown there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, that's what she does. Well, that's very cool. Thank you, April. Next we have from Fitchburg. Wisconsin in the United States of America, Sheila Gillum. Sheila 
Sheila, take a Sheila, take a bow. And what does Sheila do there in Fitchburg? She is the president of the Smiths fan club. The Smiths? Yeah. Did you like the, uh, speaking of the Smiths and other sort of gothy, feel, feel sorry for themselves bands. Did you like the picture of Robert Smith in the golf court that I, <laughs> yeah, golf cart that I, I sent? It says, we're going for a cry. <laughs> Yeah, he's just looking looking all downtrodden, sitting alone in a golf cart. Oh, Robert. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, Smith, I, uh, I have a few friends who have not nice things to say about Morrissey. Yeah, well, he's gone sort of weird in his old age. Yeah, he went a little, he was a little wibbly to begin with. Yeah. But uh, he was easier to connect with in the 80s. Yes. When, especially when we were feeling that angst and <laughs> depression as young Young people, downtrodden. In the seaside town, they forgot to bomb. <laughs> come on, Armageddon, come on. Did you ever dance uh, in your room um, down, to, down to the knees? No, no, I did not. Okay. No, I used to sing. I used yeah. to sing in my room, yeah. I used to play music and be moody. Be moody? Yeah. yeah, I did the same. I think every teenager does. Next we have, what a great name. Stephanie Bourgeois. Stephanie Bourgeois. Stephanie Bourgeois. The last decadent delights of, of the bourgeois. So I don't know where Stephanie Bourgeois is from, uh, but I can. I think it's probably somebody somewhere pretty swank. It's somewhere bougie. Bougie, bougie. I think she lives on Rue Saint Honoré in Paris. Oh, very nice. On the on the good end. Oh, really cool. Yeah, I love Paris. I've been talking about going back there and I think I need to go. I really think Paris needs to be in my very near future. I yeah. love it there so much. Go. Yeah. But I always want to smoke when I'm there. Don't. Yeah. It's like Gitane, those <laughs> awful cigarettes. I used to smoke those. Yeah. And it was like, oh my God, I think I like one. I feel like I just smoked a whole pack of cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, I haven't smoked in, oh gosh, 24 years. So wow. I probably shouldn't pick it up again. No. Because you know what one leads to? Another. Another. Yeah, every single time. So what does Stephanie do there? She's so bourgeois. Does she have a job? Does she have an occupation or a vocation? Or is she a philanthropist? What What is she it is that the, she does? She's a head curator at the Louvre. Of course she is. Yes. Of course she is. Um. The Louvre is such a fantastic place. You can get lost in there. And if you spend an entire eight hours in there, you won't see everything. There is no My favorite way. painting in there is called The Raft of the Medusa. The Raft of the Medusa. I think we've talked about it's this before. Huge. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to see it. Yeah. Uh, up close again because I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and the Cupid and Psyche statue is really nice. Mm -hmm. And what is underwhelming? Mona Lisa. So underwhelming. Such a tiny little... And there's a painting. billion people. Yeah, a billion people crowded around it. I've saw it once, mm -hmm. and I've gone to leave a lot of times, and I just I skip it because there's there's so many things in that museum mm -hmm. that just for me personally are way more interesting. Are you allowed to take your phone into the Louvre and take pictures? I don't know. I I don't typically see people doing that. I don't know a lot of people who've been to Paris lately. I have photos from the Louvre, but oh, that hmm. was in the nineties. So, yeah, yeah, I went in the eighties. Okay. And I had my little dis my little disposable camera, my uh, 
it wasn't a Polaroid. I can't even remember what the brand was, but it had the, like a, a tall flash on it mm -hmm. with like six different flashes. Aww. Yeah. That's what I had. That's great. Yeah. But a thank you so much, Stephanie Thanks, Bourgeois, Stephanie. for doing what you do there at the Louvre because, you know, somebody's got to do it. So next up, we go to PayPal and our first donut money donor this week is Nancy Mead. And she's from Jacksonville, Florida. Jacksonville. And she says, donuts, exclamation mark, two peace signs and two donuts. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of funny. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you so much. Uh, what does Nancy do there in Jacksonville, Florida? She makes mead. She makes mead because her last name is Mead. Yeah. Wants to keep to the she easy. She and her partner do um, the medieval um, mm -hmm. dinner theater. Do they have an apiary? They have an apiary. Well, there you go. Yeah. And do people know what an apiary is? That's where you keep your bees. That's right. And uh, as mead is typically made from honey. Yes. And uh, there is mead that is apparently drinkable from Egypt, if I am correct in my assumption, because honey doesn't go bad. Interesting. Yeah, weird, right? I wouldn't. I, you know, it's like, boy, there's a lot of alcohol in this. Yeah, it's been fermenting for 5,000 years. <laughs> Next we have, from Australia, we have... Carolyn Butler says, hi from Australia. My wife is Quebecois and introduced me to your podcast. If you shit in your hat down under, you'll get attacked by drop bears. Have a coffee on us. <laughs> what? So, What's a drop bear? I don't know. So, well, Carolyn Butler's a nice lady. She's <laughs> sending us some little bit of cash from Australia. Which is fantastic. Oh my god. I I apologize. For What's my... a what is a drop bear? I'm gonna look it up. You need to Google drop bears right now drop. because I want to know what an Australian drop bear is. If you shit in your hat, you'll get on attack by Okay, drop bear. Yes. Is a hoax in contemporary Australian folklore featuring a predatory carnivorous version of the koala. Oh, weird. So like Oh, an, and they have like pictures with koalas with like vampire fangs and stuff online. Wow, that's crazy. Well, I don't want to be attacked by a drop bear. You know what my dad said? What? About koala bears? What? They smell like he's a veterinarian, so right. he would know. Smell like pee. Why? I don't know. I think he told me that. Maybe I'm <laughs> conflating it with somebody else. But uh, uh, somebody Perhaps my father told me that they smell like pee. I don't know. He might have said something else about them. Call him and ask this weekend. I'm not going to call him and ask him that. You so Australia has its own little koala cryptid. <laughs> yeah, well, I love the cryptids. Talk about speaking of cryptids, supernatural circumstances. <laughs> exactly. But uh, thank you so much to Carolyn Butler. And what does Carolyn do there in Australia? She hunts down the drop bears. Of course. Yeah, she's a drop bear hunter. So she's plugging her business, really? Yeah. Ah, okay. That's well, fine. we have some people do that. And, we, you know, if you want to pay us uh, some donut money to yeah, plug your business, yeah. we might do that. We're happy. Yeah. Depends. Yeah, if if your business is, uh, like, things that kill people, yeah, no, <laughs> not so much. Well, that could be interesting, though. Yeah, but they could, uh, yeah, they can probably afford, like, a big donation, too. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to promote your, <laughs> you, want to, you want to promote, 
promote your war machines, it's $10,000. Anyway. And uh, yeah, your name can't end in T-I-N. Okay. Just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Until we meet again. Don't know where. Don't know when. Oh, Vera is rolling around in her grave somewhere. Was that Vera Lynn? It was. That was a good song, though. Yeah. It was a good song, but you didn't do a good rendition of it. My mama says just because you can't sing, it doesn't mean you shouldn't. That's right. <laughs> I, I'm not saying. Maybe, uh, Matthew. Maybe sing on your own show. You should. <laughs> Matthew, do you sing solo? Solo, no one can hear you? <laughs> or maybe you should sing tenor, 10 or 12 miles away. <laughs> anyway, see you later, folks. Bye. Bye. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? (laughs) Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.